Good morning. What did you say? Merry after Christmas? Merry after Christmas. Merry before New Year? Uh, <laughs> something like that. Kind of one of those in-between kinds of days, you know? Yeah, here we are. Well, everybody have a good Christmas? Yes. We had a great Christmas. It was nice. It was relaxed. It was fun. It was, yeah, it was a good Christmas. Um, we are going to be looking uh, one last time at the Christmas story and a passage that Jesse already read a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's go ahead and look at that for a moment and um, be reminded of this part of the Christmas story. It's appropriate the Sunday after Christmas to look at a story like this because, as we will see, this is one of those passages that really takes place after the birth of Christ. It's a little ways uh, into his life. So it's not one of those just immediate kinds of stories. Um, when, when Jesus is a little baby, really it's a little bit longer after that. So it's appropriate to look at this uh, after the time of his birth. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for the reminder throughout this season that Jesus has come to seek and to save those who are lost. And that includes every single one of us in this room. 
lost people who have been sought out and saved because of Jesus. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and open our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us today from this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you love Christmas carols? Oh, yeah, of course. You know, I've said for years, one of the things I love about our faith, one of the things I love about Christianity is that we are a singing faith. It's one of the things that I find unique as we have served as missionaries in various places in the world. It is one of the things that is unique about our faith. And I don't know that you realize that we are a singing faith. This is what we do. When Christians gather together, wherever you are in the world, we gather together and we sing together as a people. Not everybody does that. Not everybody does that. So what's your favorite Christmas carol? What's your favorite Christmas carol? Who has a favorite? Hark the Herald Angels, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Why do you like it, Nick? What's so good about that? It's theologically packed. Yeah, a yeah. lot of theology in that one. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Others, what's your favorite Christmas carol? Nobody has a favorite. Oh, Holy Night. I love Oh, Holy Night, but it's hard to sing in a group. Everybody wants to go a different direction, you know, especially at the end. Do we go up? Do we do this? Do we do that? It's great. Great song. Yeah. Oh, Holy Night. Honey, what's your favorite Christmas carol? I do this all the time with her at home. Hmm. The line, Yay, Lord, we greet thee. Yay, Lord, we greet thee. Such richness in that one, greeting him. Yes, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Christmas carols, they're just a part of the season, aren't they? We, I was glad this morning we actually sang my favorite Christmas carol, um, O Little Town of Bethlehem. My favorite Christmas carol, largely because of the third verse. Love that third verse. Um, that talks about this coming child who still is seeking and saving lost people, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Oh, little town of Bethlehem has a great, uh, it has a great story behind it. In 1868, an Episcopalian rector by the name of Phillips Brooks penned those words that have become so familiar to us and so beloved by so many people. They were inspired by a visit to the Holy Land in 1866. And in those words, Brooks captures the site of this, this small town of Bethlehem that is nestled there in the Judean hills. If you've ever been to Bethlehem, it is a very picturesque kind of a place, just nestled in there amongst the hills. And he, faint, he paints that, that familiar word picture in those first lines, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. If you've ever been to Israel, and especially out there in that area of Israel, the stars are amazing. Remarkable. Most remarkable stars I've ever seen were in the southern part of Israel in that, in that sky, that nighttime sky. It's a remarkable sight, and he captures that. 
the silent stars go by. But it's in the next to the last line where Brooks captures, I think, the emotion and, and even the tension of the birth of the baby Jesus. Tremendous emotion in such simple words as he declares, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You see the extremes that are in that simple sentence, the hopes and the fears of all the ages, of all the years are met right here in this one person, the person of Jesus Christ. You take all the hopes of the years, you take all the fears and all the anxieties of the years and you put them together and what do you get? You have this, this one child right here who encapsulates all of that. The hopes and the fears of the endless ages of waiting and wondering and anticipation of the coming Messiah. How can the birth of one small child contain such a range of emotions, such strong response? <clears throat> Matthew captures for us the, and illustrates for us, I think, this part of the Christmas story. As the account unfolds, we see both hope-filled and fear-filled people responding to the announcement of Messiah's birth, don't we? It's what we find here in the story of Herod and the wise men. The hope and the fear of all the years are met in this one person. And it, indeed, I think the hopes and fears of every person in this room captured right here in this, in this sentence, in this saying, and, and in the person of Jesus Christ. As we come to him, we bring all of that, don't we? We bring all of our hopes, our, our dreams, our, our desires, and yet we also bring to him our fears and our anxieties, the hopes and fears, not only of all the years, but of every person here we bring to the person of Jesus Christ. But to find the beginnings of our story, we must not turn to the Gospels. We don't turn to the account of Matthew or even to the account of Luke in those familiar stories of the birth of Jesus. We have to go further back. Not even to the prophetic passages, the familiar passages of Isaiah and Micah. We have to go further back than that to find the, the roots of our story. We go back into the book of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, where we find the beginnings of the Christmas story in such a simple way. Where we find in Genesis chapter 3, where God has created all of the, the world. He has created all the things of the world, and he has created the people to live in fellowship with one another, in fellowship with himself, in this, this perfect place, this, this place of, of absolute shalom. As, as, as we look at the Garden of Eden and, and, and God living in, in relationship, perfect relationship with his people. But we see in Genesis chapter 3, 
that this shalom has been broken because man by his own will and according, has gone his own way and by his choice, he has broken fellowship with God and says, we will not go your way. We will, we will live as we desire and not the way you desire us to live. And so man by his choice and man by his will has gone his own way. But in the midst of that tragic story, there is a word of hope. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee. As God says, verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3, to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I'm sorry, it was just before that. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise here that through the offspring of the woman comes this word of hope, that there would come one who would restore the shalom, who would redeem all of creation that has been broken because man by his own will and his own choice has gone his own way. And so even in the midst of tragedy, there is this word of hope. There is one that is coming and he would come through the woman, the seed of the woman, the, the, the child of, of, of a woman who would come and redeem and restore what has been broken by the fall. And so there is this question, no doubt there has been this question for years, who would be that one? Who would be this child, this, this son of this woman that would come and restore? Who is this person in whom we would put our hope? Who would restore our, our relationship with one another and our relationship with God to the way that God intended it from the very beginning? Where would it come from? Where would this hope be? We find the answer in part, turn ahead a few chapters to Genesis chapter 12, where we find in a familiar passage the launch of God's redemptive plan where he puts this in motion. The hopes of all the years, where would this person come from? Who would this person be? Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we see in this passage the launch of God's redemptive plan, not only for Abraham, but for, but for all of mankind. 
And this word blessing that, that, that God uses in this passage connects these words with what we have just seen in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, where in God's, in, in God's creation of the world, this blessing, this is so connected with the creation and the blessing of all the peoples of the earth. That this is, this is an outflow of this, this blessing that, that God is is giving to his people. God's work of redemption and restoration would take place within the created order of his world. And all of creation has been broken by sin, so all of creation and humanity must together be mended through God's choice person. How would he do this? The climax of the blessing to Abraham, we find there in the third verse. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the pinnacle, the absolute purpose of God's calling and blessing to Abraham to to bless all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And in this, we must see something of the heart of God. We must see something of the intent of God. It is God's greatest desire to bless. That is who he is and that is what he does. He is a God who desires to bless his creation, to bless his people. Not only to bless Abraham and through Abraham, not only to bless his chosen people, but notice what he says here. It is my desire to bless all the peoples of the earth. To bless all nations. And in so doing, we can see in this God declaring himself blatantly for all the world to see, I am not only the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am not only the God of the Jews, not only the God of Israel. I am the God of all nations. I am the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. I am the God of male and female. I am the God of all of creation. I am not an exclusive God desiring to be known by only a few people. I am an inclusive God desiring to be known by all peoples of the earth. This is what he is declaring through Abraham. My desire is not that you hoard the blessing to yourself. My desire is that through you, all peoples of the earth will be known. By, by me, and they will know me, and I will be their God, and they will worship me. So what God promised through Abraham, we find he ultimately fulfills in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn from Genesis now to Matthew. Not quite to Matthew chapter 2 yet. But as we turn to Matthew's gospel, we find that Matthew is very careful in connecting his gospel message. He is very careful in connecting this part of the Christmas story with what we have just seen in the person of Abraham. Look at the very first words in the gospel of Matthew. He writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is the family line of Jesus. 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that every person reading this gospel, every good Jewish person who understands anything of the Old Testament, instantly their mind goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and says, this is the person through whom God will bless all nations. This is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. This is the son of Abraham through whom the blessing will now come. Matthew connects the person of Jesus with the person of Abraham. And by so doing, he connects Jesus with the promise that God made to Abraham. Not only would Jesus' family line be traced back to Abraham, but the gospel message that Jesus proclaims is traced back to Abraham as well. Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. This is exactly what they would be thinking as they read this. This is the one. Who is the one through whom God would restore the shalom that has been broken in the garden through the line of Abraham, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ? The seed of the woman that brings, restores the hope of all the years. This is the one that we have looked for. This is the one that we have waited for. This is the one that we have wanted. And so as we step into Matthew chapter 2, we jump perhaps two years ahead as much as two years ahead into the life of Jesus. No longer the infant in, in the stable, no longer the infant here in the manger. He is now probably a toddler, a young child. Probably the family has settled in Bethlehem for a time. They're still in Bethlehem. Many people believe that they lived in Bethlehem for quite a long time. They, they, they settled there until their flight to Egypt. Later on, they returned to Nazareth. But for a time, obviously, they've been living in Bethlehem. In Jesus' young childhood, here they are. And as we have observed several times throughout this Advent series, the announcement of Jesus' birth evokes a variety of responses. It's no different today. It's reminded me yet again as I read this story and as I listen to the stories of people around me, it is virtually impossible to remain neutral about the person of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis made the great observation that we can't just say he was a good man. No, we don't have that option. To truly understand who Jesus is forces us to make a decision one direction or another. And we see that here in this passage. It does not offer us the option of neutrality about the person of Jesus. It forces us to make a choice. The same is true for every single one of us. So in each of these announcements, we have seen again and again that God is the initiator. He is the one approaching his creation. He is the one who is coming to people, not waiting for people to come to him, but he goes to them. He makes the first move toward his creation, announcing, preparing, arranging, orchestrating events for the arrival of his son into creation. 
we see again and again how God meets people in their doubts and he meets people in their fears and in their wondering and in their suffering and in their confusion. We have seen again and again how he is the God of the hopeless and the helpless. He is the God of the outcast and the ostracized. But we are going to see today a different side of the story that he is also the God of the elite and the God of the powerful. He is the God of all people. And that includes all the classes of people in the world. But even more importantly, as Matthew is clearly stating, he is the God of all peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The announcement comes first in a very peculiar way to the most surprising of people. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. The most obvious question in our minds as we read these verses is, well, who are these men? Who are these men to whom this announcement has come? Who are these these wise men? The, The word literally is magi. They were men who were leading figures in the religious court of their country. They employed a variety of scientific and diplomatic and religious elements in their work. They often studied the stars. They are most often thought of as astrologers. I hope that gets your attention. And apparently they were also exposed to the Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah. They knew about these prophetic words. And so when they observed something in the heavens, there was something that caught their attention This is the fulfillment of these prophetic words that we have heard before, these Old Testament prophecies. But the most obvious thing that we notice about these men is that they are not Jews. They are Gentiles. They are Gentiles probably from the region of Babylon, which ought to tell us something there. There were still Jews living in that region after the Babylonian exile, which is probably how they became acquainted with some of the Old Testament prophecies. What we have to see in this story and the connection that Matthew is obviously wanting us to see here is that the birth of Jesus is not limited to one group of people, exclusively for the Jews, it is his fulfillment, the the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and God's promise through Abraham that all peoples of the earth, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation would be blessed. We have to see that the stable door is not a barrier keeping some people out. It is an open door welcoming all people in. Whoever God would lead, whoever God would announce to is welcome to come and to worship the baby Jesus. And this is what Matthew wants us to understand. 
But perhaps more importantly, we see yet again that God is taking the first step. He is making the first move. We don't see the Magi trying to figure something out. No, they are responding to the first move that God has made toward them. Admittedly, there is something in this story that is exciting, yet tense at the same time. While on the one hand, Scripture forbids the use of astrology. We find that in a number of passages in the Old Testament. Yet somehow God uses this very means to to speak to people in a language and in a manner that they would understand and respond. He uses this event as a, as a, as a way of declaring to these people who, who watch the stars, who discern the seasons, who, who, who understand the times and events. It's a reminder to us that God will use whatever means he chooses in order to lead people to the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the most important part of the story, that he leads them to Jesus in a language and in a means they can relate to, in a way that they can understand. He chooses the method and he chooses the means to declare his news to the wise men. And we have to see how God is speaking to people in languages they understand and in methods that they can discern in order to draw them to the person of Jesus Christ. The details of it admittedly remain a mystery to us. We don't fully understand what was this star. There is something miraculous about it because it has the ability to guide them and to lead them. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So there is something miraculous in this. Matthew wants us to understand that, that here are people who in some way watch the stars to discern, yet God is doing something miraculous in in such a way that it is guiding them to the very place he wants them to go. He doesn't give us the full details. We have to allow the mystery to be what it is, but we also have to allow the miracle to be what it is as well. That God is using a method and a means to to lead these people where he wants them to go. It is the It is the story of God imparting to human hearts the blessing of his heaven, but he is doing it in such a way that they can hear and receive and understand and move them to the place where he wants them. I don't know if you're aware of how God does this even in our own times. When we were missionaries living overseas, we began to hear stories of how God was using dreams to call Muslims into faith in Jesus, means and methods that they can understand to call them to faith in Jesus. One of our co-workers, we worked with Buddhists. One of our co-workers one day was sharing the gospel with a Buddhist monk, and he explained to him the gospel, and the, and the monk's response was, This is the man I have been searching for all my life. I didn't know his name. And so he left his monastery. He left his his work. And somehow God had planted the seeds of the person of Jesus Christ. So when he heard the story, he instantly believed because he said, This is the man I knew existed. I just didn't know his name. And then he joined us in our work became a wonderful evangelist. 
God speaking to people in ways that they can understand and receive. So when they hear the name of Jesus, it all makes sense. That's exactly what he does here. And so in their discernment and in their understanding, the Magi come to pay homage to this newborn king. The wording is interesting. It doesn't suggest that Jesus would someday become king. No, the wording tells us that this is his status from his time of birth. Their statement is a commentary on who Jesus is, not on who Jesus will someday be. He is recognized by these visitors as as the already reigning king of the Jews. And so verse 11, they, they offer him gifts that are fit for a king. They are expensive luxury items that befit the dignity of the role for which the child is born. This was their expectation. We're going to visit a king. We will take the gifts that befit a king. Set against the story of the hope-filled magi, we have Herod. I don't think he's Herod the fear-filled king. He is Herod the duplicitous king. He is a man of enormous appetites. He has a lust for power and cunning strategy. He, he was placed in power by Roman appointment and is, was known for his shrewd diplomacy in his public works. Many of his public works are still seen today. The Wailing Wall, if you go to Jerusalem, built by Herod. Yet his personal life was a shambles and palace intrigue was rampant. He had several wives and sons, many of whom he thought were plotting against him. And so he, he had them murdered because of his fear that they would somehow take over the throne. And so when the text tells us in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. We understand the reason for that fear. When Herod is troubled, all of Jerusalem is troubled. Here is a madman who will stop at nothing to get his own way. Herod was a man who would tolerate no rival. He would not bow the knee to any other person. He would certainly not worship a baby who would be king. And so the first thing that Herod does is consult with the religious leaders, which emphasizes to us his non-Jewish roots. Any good Jewish king would know the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of Messiah. And so he has to consult with other people. And so he goes to the scribes and the Pharisees and they turn to the passage in Micah chapter five, verse two, which is here for us in verse six. And it emphasizes two things about the coming Messiah. The first, it tells us where the baby will be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And it tells us what he will do. He will shepherd his people Israel, obviously connecting him with the greatest of all kings, King David, the king who comes from Bethlehem and shepherds his people, Israel. In such stark language, 
Matthew emphasizes that it is not for ignorance or lack of understanding that they do not worship the baby king. Notice that even the scribes and Pharisees who explain to Herod about this baby, they don't come to worship him either. We never see in Matthew's gospel that the scribes and Pharisees ever look to Jesus as their Messiah. It isn't for ignorance. It's not for lack of understanding. These are people who know the prophecies. They know who can discern the signs. They, and yet they are people who choose not to worship. Isn't it strange in this part of the story, observe this, that those of God's kingdom, the scribes and Pharisees, simply ignore him. They just ignore the baby Jesus, the baby in in Bethlehem. They just ignore him. Yet we see something else. The pagan king, Herod, takes him very seriously. What we have to see in Herod here is that he is not a man of disbelief. Oh, Herod believes. And that's why he responds the way he does. Everything he does comes from a deep fear that this, very, this young child could very well be the fulfillment of this promise. And so he takes this announcement very seriously. He is not a man of disbelief, but he is a man of belief. If this is indeed the king of the Jews, then he must be done away with, as I have done away with every other rival king that has come against me. And his belief leads him to silence the voice of God. It isn't a lack of belief. It is a lack of submission in Herod that causes him to respond the way he does. It is a a lack of submission that causes him to devise a scheme to seek out the child Not so that he can worship him, but so that he can silence him. We see the plan in verse 16. Look ahead down there. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. By now, Mary, Joseph, and the child have have gone to Egypt and gotten out of the way. Herod Herod embodies for us the fear of the Pharisees and the the hatred of the self-righteous. Herod sets the standard, certainly in this world, for the way to get things done. He he sets the standard of how to strive for greatness and, and how to make a name for yourself. So remarkable are his accomplishments that he is still known by historians as Herod the Great. But Herod represents also for us as well the man who says, I will bow the knee to no other person. I will live for my own purpose. I will live by my own strength. And I will remove any person who gets in my way. Such a man cannot simply look the other way when Jesus appears because the threat of that is too great. Herod reminds us that the greatest opposition to Jesus is the human heart. It is the fiber of human society, which is every bit as opposed to giving up rule as Herod was. The most difficult throne for any of us to abdicate is the throne in our own heart. We scorn Herod because we are most like him. 
as we desperately cling to the running of our own lives and we refuse the sovereignty of Jesus. That's what we see in Herod. With a clenched fist, he does everything he can to silence God's voice and he says, I will not go your way. I will go my own way. That's Herod. But in the midst of these two accounts, we have the hope-filled magi and we have the duplicitous king. There's a third person we must see. As we trace God's unmistakable hand of providence and protection throughout this story, we see God at work in every part of this. Throughout the narrative again and again, we see the theme that God is yet again in control of all things. As he begins his redemption of humanity, his hand is on every event that transpires here. He has led the magi to the child in the manger in a manner that they could understand and discern. He has prophesied hundreds of years earlier about the birth of Jesus. And so at the, at the end of the story, once again, God steps in to protect his son. In a manner that they can understand, God speaks to the Magi in a dream. Look at verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. He warns them, don't go the way you came. Don't go back through Jerusalem. Go a different path. Go back to your country, but go by a different way. Change your plan. Change your course. Alter your direction. And in so doing, he undoes Herod's plan to kill Jesus. And the Magi heed the warning. They pay attention to what God is telling them. I don't think it is any small thing here that God preserves his promise and he preserves the life of Jesus by redirecting the Magi's path. And so they depart for their own country by a different way. It is God's providential care to alter the course of a life. I want you to think about the gravity of that for just a moment. That it is God's providential care, just as we see in the Magi, to alter the course of their return home. It is also God's providential care in your life and in mine to alter the direction, to redirect us in a way that we never would have chosen for ourselves. We don't understand it. The Magi probably never knew that the changing of their route was a part of God's plan for preserving Messiah until his time would come. And so how often do we look at the altering of a plan, the changing of a course, as an inconvenience that I have to get through so that I can get to the other side, whereas... God looks at that redirection. No, this is a part of my sovereign plan for your life. It is not just an inconvenience. 
Yes, we sit there and wonder why. We don't know the reasons. Why has God redirected me through this? Why will God not answer my question, my prayer for this? Why doesn't he move me from here to there? Why doesn't he use the means and the methods that make sense to me? Why does he alter my course to go a different direction? Like we see in the Magi, it is a part of his providential sovereign care for our lives. He sees the big picture. He sees what's going on. And so God orchestrates every step for a far greater purpose than I could have ever planned for myself. I was thinking just this past week of of these lines that I have known for years and how once again God drew me back to these words He writes with characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes and we try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes of death of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there, with larger, clearer sight, we will see this, that his way was right. When we get to the other side, when we get to, when we get through the situation, we see that's why God did it the way he did. It made no sense at the time. But in that moment, we will see God's way was right. I have no idea what 2014 has been like for you. But as I look back over these last 12 months, I have seen so many redirections of God as he has orchestrated one surprising event after another in my own life that has wound up in a finish that I never could have anticipated a year ago. I had no idea 12 months ago that I would be moving to Australia and taking a new position in a ministry that was so perfectly fit. As we have waited and wondered and watched, God, what are you doing? And I don't know what your life is like, but what do I see as I look at it from this side? I see, yes, it is by God's redirecting and God's moving in such a way that it can only be attributed to the providential care of God. It is his providential care that has led us to this place, though we may not know why or how. How often does God direct us another way that we would never have chosen for ourselves? And in the end, we will see that his way is right. So the question before us as we look at the Magi and as we look at Herod is this. Will we follow the way of the Magi that lead us into a deeper life with Jesus? Or do we follow the way of Herod? And will we fight against that way that leads us deeper into a life of selfishness, a life of treachery, away from the person of Jesus? will we see in the end that God's way was right? Let's pray together.
In these moments, simply reflect on that question. Am I listening to God's voice? Seeking to discern his way. Maybe ask the Spirit this question, where am I kicking against you and refusing to submit? Show me the place where I'm like Herod, where I refuse to give up the throne of my life and say, no, I will go my way and not yours. Father, we thank you for this story. The reminder that Jesus has come for all the peoples of the earth. Help us to listen quietly, to discern your voice, and to follow in your way.